Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories that launched this week and will be going on for quite some time, there's a trial expected to last about six months. It's uh, very much in this true crime world, is that of Michael Gargiulo. He's the so-called Hollywood Ripper. He's on trial to face two murder charges stemming from 2001 and 2008. He's also connected to a 1993 murder in Chicago. All of his victims were young women who lived nearby him. We spoke to Tarpley Hit, a reporter for the Daily Beast, to talk about who the Hollywood Ripper is and some of the dramatic court testimony that happened earlier this week. The Hollywood Ripper is this man named Michael Gargiulo. He's a man in his 40s, an air conditioner repairman who authorities allege has murdered three women, one in Chicago, two in California, and attempted to murder a fourth woman. His method roughly is to enter their house while they're asleep, usually targets young women that are his neighbors, and then stab them. In a couple of the murders, he's been wearing surgical booties or uh, latex gloves, and then leave them murdered. The trial for Michael Gargiulo just started Earlier this week, some of the most compelling testimony came from one of the survivors to his attacks, a woman by the name of Michelle Murphy. And he, in particular, as you said, he would kind of follow them. They were usually neighbors or lived very close by to him. He would follow them, see exactly what they're doing, and then would strike at night at their homes. For Michelle Murphy, tell us about what happened to her because she woke up in the middle of the night. He was already on top of her, stabbing her repeatedly. She has uh, some nerve damage. She has a bunch of scars from the attack, obviously. She was able to make it out. Tell us what happened with her. This is back in April of 2008. She's 26. She's living in Santa Monica. She has a roommate. She has a boyfriend of two months. They have this big apartment. And she has a neighbor across the alleyway. She has one of those alleyways where you can park your car behind the house. And she has this neighbor across the alleyway, never meets him. Basically, the only interaction that they have is that he drives this white van that says Dust the Plumber. Because at that point, Gargiulo, an air conditioner repairman, had gone into business with a plumbing company. So he was doing the heating and air for a larger business. Murphy probably sees him 10, 15 times just in the driver's seat of his van. They like, you know, do the, hey, how are you, wave in their backyard, but really never say hi. He's never in their house. They've never spoken or said a word ever. So then in April, Murphy's roommate, Olga, is in Poland visiting family for a wedding. And so she's in this apartment completely alone. And she has a very normal day, goes to work, comes back, exercises, watches TV, goes to bed, and then wakes up with a man straddling her in bed, stabbing her. He's only stabbing her arm, but is stabbing her repeatedly. And she's obviously screaming and struggling and saying, like, why are you doing this? And he's not answering. So her instinct is to reach up and grab the blade. He's stabbing her with a serrated blade and she grabs it with both of her bare hands and is like struggling while her, while it's obviously like cutting her hands. Yeah. And then also pulls her legs up to her chest, kicks him off to the floor. And then once he falls onto the floor, he just runs away. The unfortunate thing was, is that it was a hot day. She had like a fan on and she left the window open to her room 
And that's exactly how he got in. I, I, you know, you had been mentioning they'd seen each other through the alleyway. He ripped the screen and got in that way, you know, very quietly, undetected until he was on top of her already. She called the the cops and she found him in the in the living room right before he was ran away completely. I guess he turned around and said, I'm sorry, twice. But that was all the interaction she had with him. It's unclear why he ran away or, you know, why he said, I'm sorry. The whole thing is just kind of mysterious because with the other victims, if it is Gargiulo who did the other three murders, there was clearly a struggle in some of the other ones. And he hurt the bodies so obscenely much. Like one of the victims had 47 stab wounds to the neck. And in another one, the victim's breasts were cut off and posed around the room. The one that had the 47 stab wounds was Ashley Ellerin. She's a uh, 22-year-old fashion student. She was the one that was connected to Ashton Kutcher. They had planned to go to some Grammy Awards after party that was at the height of Ashton Kutcher's fame on that 70s show. He came to pick her up, but he told investigators that she had never come to the door. Take us back to 1993, because that's when investigators suspect he got his start. As a matter of fact, when this trial is over in Los Angeles, he's going to be extradited to Illinois to face charges there. So tell us how he got started in 1993. If Gargiulo is convicted of this 1993 murder, What authorities believe happened is that he was living in a suburb of Chicago and there was this 18-year-old high school student who had just graduated high school and was about to matriculate at Purdue. She had a full engineering scholarship and it was the younger sister of one of Gargiulo's friends. And she was coming home one night after school and at like 1 a.m. is attacked on the stoop of her house as she's trying to get in the door. And her father found her there the next morning. Authorities believe that Gargiulo was responsible for this, but he wasn't charged with that murder until years later, after he'd already allegedly killed Ashley Ellerin and a 32-year-old woman in Los Angeles named Maria Bruno. I think what's most interesting about this case is that the prosecutors have said that they will ask for the death penalty oh, yeah. if Gargiulo is convicted, or which is just a, a sort of bizarre thing, given that the state hasn't executed anyone on death row in a decade. And obviously, the governor last month wrote an executive order placing a moratorium on the procedure. So there's this odd disconnect between the prosecutors who are pushing for this and what the state wants. Yeah, 100 percent voters just as recently as a few years ago voted against abolishing the death penalty. There's 737 prisoners on death row in California right now. Even if they do get granted that, nothing will happen until Gavin Newsom stops being governor. So it is a very interesting note on that one. Tarpley Hit, West Coast reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of my favorite stories of the week is that of the e-scooter craze. It's continuing to take over cities all across the country. And while these scooters can be very fun to ride, it's always important to take proper safety precautions. A new study just came out and it's shedding light on how many people are getting injured while riding these things. Right now, e-scooter use results in about 20 injuries per 100,000. And with 38.5 million trips taken last year, those injuries can pile up very quickly. We spoke to Andrew Hawkins. He's the transportation reporter at The Verge for why you should always be wearing a helmet when riding a scooter. This is a pretty comprehensive look. What the researchers did in coordination with the folks in Austin, Texas, was they blocked out about a three-month period of time. They checked in with the emergency rooms, with local doctors, and sort of compartmentalized as many injuries as they could that they felt were associated with these electric scooters. They went in, they interviewed those people, and they got a pretty comprehensive look at what types of injuries they were talking about, where they were taking place, what time of day these injuries were taking place, to sort of get a better overall 
overall sense of how people were being injured as they were using these electric scooters. A lot of them were head injuries. 15% of the people that were injured received traumatic brain injuries. The best takeaway from all of this is that people really need to wear helmets. Yes. I mean, it really cannot be said enough that if you're going to use one of these electric scooters, you really, really, really should take into account that you need a helmet. On the face of it, 20 injuries per 100,000 trips does not seem that bad, actually, though. I mean, that's a pretty decent number. If you're practicing safe measures, you're not really going to get hurt. As you said, chief among them is wearing a helmet. you got to have that uh, just for this. Well, but to hear, just to interject, if you extrapolate that out, it doesn't sound that much on the surface. If you extrapolate that out, these companies, Bird, Lime, Jump, which is owned by Uber, Lyft, and, and, and a bunch of others, they do millions of trips all across the world. So what you're really talking about is not just 20 people. You're talking about thousands of people that are being injured. It's hard to get a truly comprehensive take on what that is. But if you if you take that section and, and blow it out and make some assumptions about it, it seems that there are probably a lot of more people that are getting injured using these than, than, than are not. That is a very good point. And let's Let's, uh, I'll, let me mention some of those numbers. They say that across the dozens of U.S. cities in 2018 that had the scooters, there was 38.5 million trips taken. During this study period, in particular, just in Austin, Texas, there was 182,000 hours of e-scooter use, 891,000 miles ridden, and about 936,000 scooter trips taken. So that is a lot. You're right. That's a lot more people than just the, the headline would suggest there. Let's talk a little bit more in depth about these specific injuries. They said about half of the injured riders reported sustaining a severe injury. What does a severe injury mean? They were categorizing it as like a torn ligament, loss of blood. Like we mentioned before, a head injury, broken bones would be filed under that as well. It's not just falling and, and skinning your knee or, or skinning your elbow necessarily, or even spraining the wrist. It's a significant number of people that are having to check into hospitals essentially after right. taking a spill off of one of these. I live in Los Angeles. And there are a ton of these e-scooters everywhere. One of the funny parts of the study was how much of a factor alcohol plays into some of these. And I can tell you from experience that, yeah, people are getting boozed up, leaving a bar. And they said a third of respondents acknowledged saying they, they drank alcohol before riding some of these scooters. I interviewed one of the co-founders of Lime, which is one of the major scooter operators yeah. recently, and he told me that they're working on a technology they're trying to embed in their scooters a type of sort of gyroscope that could detect when a rider is inebriated oh, or, or drunk. Last question I have, because cities across the country are starting pilot programs for these things. Local legislatures are passing laws to try to regulate some of these things. Bird electric scooters, uh, in particular, one of the companies. They are offering scooters for $25 a month now in case you want to keep one longer term. What's the future of the e-scooter? It's going to be more regulation. I think the cities, after getting caught with their pants down a little bit in the initial stage, Santa Monica amongst them, in L.A. as well, I think they're really starting to catch up. And it's, it's nice to see local governments passing legislation and permitting processes to sort of really monitor the situation and make sure it's being deployed in a safe and responsible way. These are tech companies. You know, their whole ethos is to seek forgiveness rather than permission. They were taught by Uber and Lyft at the beginning that that was the way to do it. You come in, you scale up really, really big and, and get everyone excited and, and interested in it. And then 
at that point, you know, the cities are, are sort of just left to kind of like watch it happen. I think the cities have, have really caught on at this point and they're doing a much better job at sort of keeping a mindful hand on the whole industry. And I'd like to see that moving forward because as we can see from this study, people continue to be injured by these products. It's going to be a huge issue, not just for the companies themselves, but for the cities as well, because those are costs associated with emergency room visits and loss of productivity, loss of life. And that's that's a bad look for everybody. Right. Bottom line, try to be careful. And if you can, wear that helmet because it's important. Wear a helmet. <laughs> Absolutely. Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great. So, Miranda, have you ever been on one of these scooters? Hell no. I see them all the time and they go so fast. I'm way too scared. They go anywhere between 15 to 17 miles an hour. If you're going really fast, you're hitting that 17 miles an hour mark. I mean, they're just so fun. I think they solve a lot of problems. That first mile, last mile thing, let's say you take some other public transportation, but you're still about a mile away from home. Yeah. You need that last little push there. I live in Los Angeles in the Hollywood area, and they're all over the place. And just a quick funny story and an illustration why you should always wear some type of protection, some helmet we were out with some friends and my wife and we're all scooting around and someone says, hey, it would be really cool to get a video of us all scooting around town. Oh, no. You know, you ride with two hands. She reaches into her back pocket. So now she took one hand off of the handlebars and she's fiddling around in her back pocket trying to get the phone out. And what happens? Boom. Right away, the handlebars twist. Oh, no. And she takes a tumble and she rolled over. And thankfully, she only had some minor scrapes, bruises, nothing major at all. Yes. But right away, I mean, that's how dangerous they are. You take a spill. And if you're in the street, you fall into oncoming traffic. It's dangerous sometimes. <laughs> Finally, a story about celebrity and criminal justice reform. Kim Kardashian West has made criminal justice reform one of her top priorities leading her to even want to become a lawyer. She's studying for the bar. She's not going to law school, but she wants to become a lawyer. In the meantime, she's been funding a campaign called 90 Days of Freedom, and she's helped release some 17 inmates in the past three months. These are all people who were serving life sentences for low-level drug offenses and are benefiting from the recently passed First Step Act. We spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter at Axios for more on Kim Kardashian's efforts. It has been reported we're seeing that Kim Kardashian West has been funding these efforts to free many people who are in prison, especially those who are facing extremely long sentences for low-level drug crimes. And this is partially possible because of the First Step Act, which you mentioned, which allowed under certain changing of rules and the way that they count good time credits, which is time off of a sentence based on good behavior. All of these rules came together to allow more people to get off their sentences a little bit earlier. So they're working with different provisions that are in the First Step Act and helping to free people. And it is pretty remarkable that there would be 17 inmates freed in just three months. That's a significant number of people who are now able to go free despite being in the middle of serving life sentences. So they're identifying people that can benefit from the passage of the First Step Act. Who's involved in this group that Kim Kardashian, from my understanding, she's helping bankroll the group and helping with a lot of the funding. But who are the lawyers behind this? The 90 Days of Freedom campaign, it was launched by Kim Kardashian's lawyer, Brittany Barnett, as well with lawyer Neangel Cody of the Decarceration Collective. And so they're working together to go and find these people who would be impacted by the First Step Act and work toward getting them released from prison. And so they're the ones kind of behind this. And there have been obviously multiple cases of them successfully being able to free these people. 
So we know about uh, Alice Marie Johnson in Alabama. I just remember seeing the video when she was actually finally released and reunited with her family. I mean, there was tears. It was so emotional because mm -hmm. it was so high profile and people were, I mean, it was happening in real time. People were watching it as, as it unfolded. Tell us about some of the other people that Kim Kardashian and her group have helped in this past few months. One of the people that TMZ has reported on is Jamel Carraway, who is back with his family and he served 11 years of a life sentence. And that was due to cocaine possession. So in simple possession, so it wasn't selling or anything else. It was just possessing cocaine. And probably the amount that he was found with was probably the reason why he received such a harsh sentence. And so now he is back with his family and transitioning back into society. Another story that was told was Eric Falcom. He is back in Florida and he's seeing his mom for the first time in 16 years. And again, it was also a drug charge that he was originally arrested for and sentenced to life without parole from. And so we're seeing these stories of people who are really giving, giving these extreme sentences and you can only imagine what it's like to have been facing the rest of your life behind bars and now being able to be reunited with your family. Why would these people get such harsh sentences? I mean, 11 years for cocaine possession, you kind of alluded to it. Is it the amount that they're caught with that makes these sentences so harsh? It depends a lot on where you are and how much of a substance you're caught with and the, the kind of drug that you are caught with in the U.S., the harsher drugs like heroin and cocaine, when you're found in possession of some of those harder drugs, you're more likely to get a more harsh sentence. And of course, this always goes back to the war on drugs and these harsh sentences that began to roll out. There are also mechanisms where when there are multiple charges for certain kinds of crimes, the sentences can build upon each other. So you can add sentences for maybe being arrested for having cocaine and also happening to have a gun on you and they can stack those sentences. So there are many ways that these ultimate sentences end up getting so long just for drug possession. For all the criticism that Kim Kardashian gets, it is a very admirable cause to be dedicated to, to help mm -hmm. people out in this way. I know she also got a lot of flack for saying that she is studying for the bar exam to become a lawyer. A lot of people say, well, you know, you're not going to law school. You're not going through the, the proper ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot more of this type of stuff. Oxygen Media had just greenlit a documentary that's going to be executive produced by Kim Kardashian. It's called The Kim Kardashian, The Justice Project. I think it's going to be a two-hour documentary that's going to chronicle her trying to secure freedom for Americans who she thinks have been wronged by the justice system. I don't know mm -hmm. if it's going to touch on her trying to become a lawyer also, but if uh, right now she's working with this group, 90 Days of Freedom, I mean, she wants to get a little bit of that background on her so that she can help out with some of this stuff beyond just bankrolling mm -hmm. these things. You know, it's pretty admirable to be doing that stuff. But as I said, we'll be seeing a lot more of it on TV play out as well. And celebrities getting involved in this issue, for many advocates, they say that this is helpful, that one of the issues with the criminal justice system is that it is so complicated. And there are so many people who are behind bars with these very long sentences that don't really have anyone speaking on their behalf or who can't afford to keep a lawyer on their case. And so for many people, having high profile people like Kim Kardashian West or even Meek Mill, who has had his own experiences in the criminal justice system and is now speaking out for probation and parole reform, it really does help amplify this issue that often gets a lot of support and a lot of energy behind it, but then disappears again once there aren't any pressing issues. And so the advocates that I've spoken to and people who worked with Kim Kardashian and the 
way that she advocated for the First Step Act would say that she did a really great job of just keeping this at the forefront of the news and having more people talking about it. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.